You've been hearing ads for Zencaster these past months. Interested in sponsoring this show or podcast ads for your business? Go to zen.ai forward slash the archaeology show and fill out the contact information so Zencaster can help you bring your business story to life. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to another episode of Archaeo Animals, the podcast all about zooarchaeology. I'm your host, Alex Fitzpatrick, and with me as always, Simona Falanga. And this is the second part of our latest mini-series, which we've titled Where in the World, because I'm extremely good at titles. And it's finally forcing us to not talk about British stuff and actually look at the other parts of the world, because it's there's a world out there beyond the UK, shockingly. <laughs> Once again, like, dropping truth bombs within, like, Two minutes. Yeah, I know, and I I don't think you'll be able to even talk about the Romans in this episode. So, uh, are you going to be okay? I don't know. Like, I'm, I'm sure I can shove them in somewhere. This is true. Yes, we we know this as a fact now. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's um, quite good because it's given us a chance to get out of our comfort zone because we are very conscious that, of course, both of us being trained and living in the UK, we do tend to get a bit British-centric. So, yeah, um, what we've been doing sort of for this mini-series, that we've broken them up into continents. So we covered Europe in our last one. So feel free to go check it out if you want. Um, and today we'll be looking at Africa. Of course, disclaimer, as for all of our mini-series, you know, these are roughly sort of one-hour-long episodes. So it is a very broad overview of sort of zoo archaeology in any given continent so so please you know bear that in mind because especially you know with africa it's a huge continent so we'll do our best with the time we've got yeah so we will be speaking a bit broadly but we'll make specifics when when and where we can and this will go for the rest of the mini series that said, if you like these episodes and you want us to tackle, say, a specific country or a specific region within these continents, let us know. We love to take episode requests when they come. Anyway, let's start with the wild species, as we have been doing in the last episode. So Africa is great because we can actually get into some really interesting species that we haven't talked about in previous episodes, starting with the African elephant, which technically refers to two separate species, the African bush elephant. Am I doing the species name again? Every time. Luxodonta africana. 
it just sounds right when you say it. It's not going to sound right when my American accent tries and tackles this. And also, I did really poorly in Latin when I took it in my undergraduate. So it's a little bit traumatizing for me. Fair enough. I just make them all sound like Roman generals. This is true. Uh, the other subspecies is the African forest elephant. Loxodonta chiclotis. Yeah. There you go. And arguably the most important part of the elephant from a archaeological perspective, if we're just looking at artifactual kind of remains and things like that, is the ivory tusks, which have actually been found as grave goods from burials of important people and leaders of the Ibo Uku in Nigeria. And ivory artwork is also commonly associated with the Kingdom of Congo, located in the lower Congo region of Africa. These also include very elaborately carved side-blown horns called elephants. And these very figurative, again, very elegantly carved scepters. So... These are actually really kind of important when we look at the Portuguese colonization of parts of Africa. Uh, when Portuguese colonizers and missionaries actually arrived to the continent, many of these kind of ivory artworks would be especially commissioned as gifts and trade, leading them to be referred to by uh, many as the Afro-Portuguese ivories. So many of them are on display under that kind of name. And also in terms of a uh, wild species, because another sort of fairly well-known one is the, the Western gorilla. But again, like the elephant, where we do refer to two separate species, you have the Western lowland gorilla, 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 just in case there are any doubts there, it's gorilla three times, and the cross river gorilla, 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 dieli. In a way, like we wanted to cover gorillas because it gives us an interesting sort of moment to talk about sort of a, a distant cousin of zoo archaeology, <laughs> primatology, which is arguably a branch of physical anthropology. Primatology, of course, specifically studies non-human primates and looks at their interactions between themselves and other species, their behaviours and so on, their evolution over time. These studies, of course, you know, have been crucial to helping us better understand things such as the complexity of guerrilla societies and social groups, as well as their ability to use tools and gather food more easily, which is incredibly fascinating to think of from an archaeological perspective. Yeah, because, you know, we always look at objects, things that look like tools from that kind of anthropocentric perspective especially obviously places like the united kingdom where we don't really have we don't really have gorillas and you know if you find something that looks like it was used as a tool you'd be like oh you know is that some kind of warped item some kind of tool used by humans from the long past but it's interesting to think of finding objects and and for gorillas it's mostly just kind of reworking branches and things like that but even still it's interesting to kind of not consider them as tools in that same perspective, even though they technically are. But it's because it's an object that has been shaped to serve a particular, or not necessarily been reshaped, or an object has been repurposed for a, a particular use with intent. Because you see that with a range of sort of primates, and you see that in chimpanzees as well, where like tools get utilized for what doesn't look like their apparent purpose, if that makes sense. Yeah, and it's it's just interesting, I guess, to 
think of if you had, say, a archaeological assemblage, and let's say there were a couple of branches in there that were actually used as tools by gorillas, we wouldn't, one, we wouldn't be able to really know. But it's just, it's just funny that that would be kind of in an assemblage of items that could be used as tools and we would just not even consider it because we're very anthropocentric a lot of the times in our work. Yes, we do forget that, you know, like using tools is not a human specialty. <laughs> I mean, plenty of other species do. Too. I mean, Corvids, I think, have been proven to use tools. Like I said, they'll, they'll gather sort of twigs and sticks to like help like extract insects and they'll like keep them aside, reuse them later. Yeah, there was a really great tweet uh, a couple of weeks ago. Someone pointed out that there was a, they found like a, a bottle and a bunch of like shells, like empty kind of like snail shells. And they pointed out, oh, this is, this has been used as a tool by like local birds that were like smashing the shells against the bottle this whole time. And it's like the little things like that that I, I find very, very interesting, especially from a zooarchaeological perspective of trying to be less anthropocentric. I don't know. I, I like to I like to tie my brain in knots sometimes. I think it's fun, I guess. And also, like I said, this was a great example of primatology, which we don't really talk about, but is is kind of our distant zooarchaeological cousin in a way. And I guess, again, because we tend to be very British-centric, there's not much in the way of primates that isn't human. <laughs> With the exception, now we know, of the one monkey species in Gibraltar. This is true. Yes, of course, that that's the one exception. But especially, I think, as an American who, you know, in America, archaeology and anthropology are very much intertwined. I did a whole uh, semester in primatology. I realized it was not my thing, which is, I guess, kind of ironic, given that I went on to do zooarchaeology, which isn't really that different in some respects. I was kind of just like all the all these monkey bones look the same. I don't get it. And uh, look at me now guess they had the last laugh. <laughs> Make a great <laughs> blog post. These monkey bones are all the same. I don't get it. <laughs> to be fair, the lecture was also at 9am on a Wednesday. So, I mean, let's just say I did not show up most of the time. So maybe I missed some of the key classes that taught me how to differentiate between all those bones. I'm a very good student. Anyway, moving on. The other kind of animal I think we all kind of think of when we think of Africa is the lion. Panthera Leo. <laughs> Thank you. I'm just waiting for that. And it's arguably one of the most important animals, both culturally and symbolically, across many African cultures. Lions are pretty well represented in depictions across African artifacts, which, you know, makes sense. There's a lot of cultures kind of symbolize lions as being the the top of kind of hierarchies uh, in the animal kingdom, the idea of it, you know, king of the jungle type things, associating it with strength and rulership. Although I also know that in some East African cultures in particular, in East African folklore, the lion is considered a very lazy creature and is often kind of like the a bit of the butt of the of some jokes in terms of being slow and lazy and kind of, you know, not fussed to get up and I things like that. It, so it kind of is. 
Well, yeah, that that is the funny thing is that that's probably that's much closer to the actual realities of the lion. But it's interesting to see that kind of difference across cultures. And of course, historically, hunting of lions is very long documented with the reasons for it also varying across cultures. In ancient Egypt, for example, lion hunting was mostly reserved for pharaohs. And among the Maasai in Kenya and Tanzania, lion hunting is actually kind of seen as a rite of passage. And I believe it's still seen as that uh, um, among the remaining Maasai that's lo- that are located there. So it's, it's really interesting to see the lion kind of vary across cultures uh, across the African continent. Another one that we chose in terms of wild animals is the white rhino. Oof, that's a mouthful. Ceratotherium simum. Mm-hmm. Um, it is the largest extant species of rhino for now, alas. Again, the, the trend continues, uh, which has two subspecies, the southern white rhino and the rarer northern white rhino, which I think is now sort of functionally extinct. Yeah, I believe there's only like a handful if not like very few left in, in I believe they're um, almost all in captivity, maybe. Yeah, but I guess like not enough to sort of sustain a healthy population. No, definitely not. But anyway, I think probably going to see a lot of that like over like sort of all the continents that we're going to cover in all fairness. So, but yes, so um, analysis of Iron Age and historical African farming communities in Southern Africa has led to the interpretation that rhinos were both symbolically significant, and that's based on sort of artifactual evidence, just clay and gold rhino figurines, but also significant on a domestic context, based on the skeletal remains that were found sort of in settlements or domestic context in general. So we have uncovered sort of horns, hide, meat, you know, which were likely used for food and uh, goods to trade. Yeah, it, it is actually really interesting because I think also as two people who are not connected to the African continent and have a lot more unfamiliarities in comparison to when we tackled Europe, a lot of these are kind of uses of animals that I think neither of us would have maybe thought of immediately. (laughs) Yeah. And like, so it's interesting. I never would have thought white rhino or rhinoceroses in general to be used for meat per se. And I think that speaks maybe to a kind of broader cultural difference in terms of you know, a lot of times I think when we think of animals, especially African animals, and again, with the disclaimer that we do not do work on the African continent, we all, I, I don't know about you, but I always kind of think of African animals in the present tense, because especially if you're thinking about the work that's done here in the UK, a lot of that work is that kind of conservation work, you know, zoos, things like that. Yeah, you tend to think of them as in now and not sort of what the exploitation of the rhino would have been in the Iron Age. Yeah, and I think that will go across a lot of the other continents that we aren't necessarily as familiar with, you know, or don't have a familiarity with working with them in that, you know, because we don't think about them archaeologically, it's interesting to kind of delve into the research that's being done or has been done on a lot of these animals and think about how, you know, how they're fought in the past. Yeah, because I think like the exception, the only time where we'd seen this species would perhaps be in the Roman period. 
There you go. Where animals would get uh, brought over sort of to fighting arenas, which again, <laughs> yeah, more, more happy things. Well, I guess this isn't really that happy. It's kind of happy, maybe. The But the, our last species. Sorry, like a, maybe the, my sarcasm wasn't properly conveyed. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. this last species is, is kind of happy. It's the spotted hyena. Yes, crocuta, crocuta. And it also kind of fits into what we were just talking about with thinking about these animals in the present tense versus the past, because we actually have evidence of the spotted hyena in the past, in the Pleistocene here in the UK. So I don't think we've actually covered the spotted hyena in general, though, but even though... I think we must have done, because we, we have a Pleistocene sort of um, Pleistocene species episode so as we covered sort of these subspecies, if you can call it that, that was found throughout Europe, which is Crocuta, Crocuta, Spelea, so like the, the cave hyena. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now it's coming it's coming back to me. But even though we, we did cover that in a European context, that was back in the Pleistocene. But today and of course in, in the past, hyenas were actually a major taphonomic agent in sub-Saharan Africa. As scavengers, they actually produce very distinctive assemblages of skeletal remains with identifiable gnawing and associated droppings. And uh, yeah, that's why they're terrifying to me, is how they can really go out of bone and leave these very distinctive kind of skeletal remain assemblages. And I don't want that happening to me, to be honest. No, like a thing they're in equal parts, beautiful and terrifying, like the honey badger. Yes, exactly. But it is interesting to think about how, you know, if you have an assemblage of kind of scattered prey remains, you could uh, easily think of it as, oh, it's the spy hyena and how they transform their own kind of assemblages. Because yeah, they've essentially, long story short, they've got the Carnassials from Doom. Yeah. Which basically, I guess, will be like the last premolar, sort of uh, the lower premolar and the upper first molar. Big Carnassials. And as we kind of think about how scary that is, I think we'll take a break and we'll move on in our next segment onto the domesticates. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Use the code ANIMALS, that's A-N-I-M-A-L-S, at the link in the show notes, or go to Zencaster.com and use the code. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com to get 30% off your first three months. Again, use the code ANIMALS for 30% off your first three months at Zencaster.com. 
Chris Webster here from the APM. You've heard me talk about Zencaster for a few months now, and there's never been a better time to check this out and start a podcast. Zencaster has hosting tools and both audio and video podcasting capability. Many of you have already clicked on the link in the show notes, and we thank you for that. Welcome back to Archaeo Animals. This episode, we're talking about the zooarchaeology of Africa, and we are on the second segment. So we will be talking about the domesticates that are normally found in this continent. I mean, there might be some repetition here and there, because as we discussed in our previous episode of the miniseries about Europe, the same sort of common domesticates do tend to spread around the entire globe. But we've tried our best to find some of some species that are either predominantly found in Africa or were domesticated on the continent. And we will start with the dromedary. Camelus dromedarius. Which is also known as the Arabian camel. It was probably first domesticated about 4,000 years ago in the Arabian Peninsula, but it is now widespread in other places such as the Sahara Desert. And we have actually talked about camels in a previous episode. Yes, uh, I guess the main physical difference that comes to mind is that the camel will have uh, two humps, while the dromedary will only have one. Which is, you know, something that I would never have thought about. But again, it's that kind of bias that we will come across in basically every single episode that isn't about Europe, or I guess maybe in my case, I'll, I'll be able to kind of remember things from North America. But, you know, it's those little things that you're just like, oh, never would have thought about that. And I think we also kind of see that when it comes to the, the many, many subspecies of many of these animals. Yeah, because I mean, I guess the full name of the dromedary will be the, the Arabian one-humped riding camel. But that's a mouthful. (laughs) (laughs) And as I said, we did cover camels. So there's not that much difference in terms of what they are as domesticates. They have a very variety of uses. As we just said, transports the riding camel for plowing, draft animals, beasts of burden, for milking, and for meat and wool. And also sometimes for leather, although it is apparently a terrible form of leather that comes out of a dromedary hide. Well, I guess it's just one of those things you make the most out of the the animals you have at your disposal. Yeah, for sure. Now, next one is the zebu, which is Bostaurus indicus, which is actually a subspecies of the domestic Cattle, as you can see, you know, Bostaurus is the species name of uh, domesticated cattle, with sort of a subspecies being Indicus, which makes sense as the this subspecies of cattle actually originates from the southeast of Asia and has since spread to the African continent. You, found, you can generally find sort of depictions of the zebu on pottery found in Egypt, which suggests that actually the subspecies may have been present there since about 2000 BC with then sort of further introductions to sub-Saharan Africa taking place around 700 AD and eventually reaching all the way to the Horn of Africa by the year 1000 AD. So in a way, as you expect, you know, the zebu looks very similar to domesticated cattle, but actually they're not as milk-bearing 
as most of the cattle breeds we'd know of, unless they get specifically crossbred with other cattle species, sort of with milk production in mind. So they're not heavy milkers, which is a, a term that Alex taught us in the last episode. <laughs> now, another difference with other cattle or, or your generic cattle include a, a very characteristic hump and droopy ears as well as, of course, you know, a much better tolerance for hotter and drier climates, which makes this particular subspecies more suitable to Africa and Asia. They also have very big neck folds, which I find extremely cute. They're very adorable looking. If you don't know what a zebu looks like, please Google it. They're very adorable looking, the little hump. They got the little droopy ears. I'm kind of sad we don't have zebu in Europe we kind of do, like probably in zoos or something, but they're just really cute. I mean, I guess maybe they could just about cope sort of in the Mediterranean area, because I guess in terms of landscape, you know, it is sort of in terms of vegetation and climate, it is quite close to sort of so the North African countries, but um, probably not much beyond that. Yeah, I believe the other thing I read about them is that they're also very resistant to a lot of different parasites so they seem to really be pretty uh sturdy sturdy cattle (laughs) heavy milkers not so much but otherwise pretty sturdy cattle with droopy ears anyway moving on to a domesticated fowl we have the guinea fowl more specifically we have the helmeted guinea fowl Numida meleagris. Which has actually been introduced across the world as a domesticated species, but actually originates from southern Africa. And they're often kept as, you know, free-ranging poultry and are actually apparently much more protein-rich than other domestic fowl, including chicken, and also much richer eggs, apparently. It's the one upside of of keeping guinea fowl as well, because they are loud creatures. Are they? Oh, they are so loud. (laughs) (laughs) Like, just easily started, and then when they start going, oh, man. (laughs) I don't think I've actually seen guinea fowl, so I would not have known. But, yeah, that that sounds horrible, I guess. (laughs) I think, like, where I'm from, we actually call them, like, pharaoh chickens really which i guess it makes sense you know they are very bright they're fabulous looking birds they are yeah bright blue and red heads and and then just they just scream yeah i was looking at some pictures as as you do uh, at during my lunch break at work and one of my coworkers was like oh why are you looking at peacocks and i was like no they're guinea fowl like no actually it's a guinea fowl actually it's a guinea fowl and actually it's a helmeted guinea fowl <laughs> even yeah even more specific how dare you but i, I kind of get why they're depending on what guinea fowl you're looking at they do kind of have like those really bright colors that you would kind of associate with peacocks And yeah, they're very interesting looking. But as Simona said, extremely loud. So, you know, if you're thinking of getting a guinea fowl, proceed with caution, I guess. But perhaps more interesting and surprising to me was that the actual origins of domestication in Africa have only kind of recently been examined. And by recently, I mean, this paper only came out last year. 
which I guess it was kind of funny because I, I always kind of knew a guinea fowl as a domesticate fowl. So it's very interesting that they've only kind of recently done the genetic research. So apparently the suggested date for, you know, the actual kind of separation of species on a genetic level is somewhere in between uh, 3500 BC and 900 AD in West Africa. And it was a single event domestication. So, yeah. Interesting. It's always, always changing our, our knowledge of the past, specifically of domestication, I guess because we only kind of just have the fancy ADNA kind of work and things like that. <laughs> yeah, moving on from uh, galliforms onto one that I guess is probably not going to be as uh, well-known is the African giant rat, which actually refers to several species, but the one we'll be looking at specifically is the southern giant pouched rat, so Crichetomis ansorgei. That's, I could not correct you as we've been through. <laughs> I'm really deferring to you on these pronunciations for the Latin, but... Just, just not 100% where the, where the accent falls there, but hey-ho. It's fine. Um, but actually, you know, in many sort of rural areas, giant rats actually represent a fairly significant source of meat and protein. More often than not, they tend to be sort of hunted or like caught. Although you do get sort of domesticated giant rats being kept, including and being kept as pets. Also, like uh, recently have been utilized for sort of like more so day to day, like modern purposes, uh, such as detecting landmines and tuberculosis, just remarkable. They they detect tuberculosis. Huh. Yeah, I mean, kind of stemming off what we were just talking about with the guinea fowl in terms of you know our understanding of the past is always changing. The past processes like domestication are also continuously still working and changing and kind of transforming even today. And the giant rat thing is actually really interesting, especially because I believe there was there's a nonprofit that started this whole training African giant rats to detect landmines, which is unfortunately a huge problem in places in Africa. And then they realized that they could also take those rats and have them detect tuberculosis. Sure, because I, I I definitely read about the landmines, but. Yeah, tuberculosis. I mean, I think it's still somewhat kind of recent, but yeah. And I, I was also thinking the landmine issue is, must be, you know, obviously it's it's a horrible issue for any person, but I also assume that it must be something you really have to kind of do uh, prelimin as preliminary work if you're going to do archaeological excavation in Africa, in some place in Africa as well. So do they release giant rats to that? Well, I mean, at the end of the day, they are heroes. And I believe that's how they refer to them as hero rats, which is how they should be referred to, because that's better work than I could ever do in my lifetime, to be completely honest. Like, it would be a big deal if I could detect landmines or tuberculosis. And these rats can do both. So icons. Yeah, good good for you, African giant rat. We salute you here at Archeo Animals. 
but yeah, it's it, it's always interesting to kind of think about more modern kind of approaches to, I guess, kind of approaches to domestication, but more of just kind of finding new avenues that domestication works through, if that makes sense. But kind of going backwards to a more old school form of domestication. It's a, an old friend. An old friend, uh, who I believe we talked about in the last episode. We have indeed. So, but you know what? Who cares? It's our podcast. We can do whatever we want. It's the donkey. We're doing donkeys again. Why not? A bit of an Ecos Africanus Asinus. And, but we have a good reason for doing them again. And that is because they were likely first domesticated in the 4th millennium BC in Northeast Africa, probably stemming from the Nubian subspecies. So the Ecos Africanus Africanus. And the Somalian. African twice. Yes. And yes, and the Somalian is uh, Ecos Africanus Somaliensis. So those two subspecies of African wild ass. So they were probably the kind of ancestors of the modern day domesticated donkey. And given that they were probably first domesticated in this area, they were likely first used by Nubian pastoral groups as pack animals. And eventually they would become one of the main vehicles for long distance trade in Egypt. And their importance to Egyptian culture and more specifically to Egyptian royalty would actually be seen in the kind of interpretations that came from the remains of donkeys that have been found in Abydos, which is a area in Egypt that has several different kind of royal graves. Uh, a lot of these tombs aren't actually identified to specific kings specifically the one that i'm talking about has not been identified to a specific king although it's probably one of the early egyptian kings likely around the period of rulers such as narmer and yeah so they found i believe it was three donkeys found in situ completely you know full-bodied donkeys found in their own bespoke grave chamber of a unknown early Egyptian king in a manner that's actually kind of associated with more high-ranking humans. I believe in other grave chambers associated with this one tomb, they found remains of people who are probably high-ranking officials and kind of close advisors and associates with whoever this Egyptian king was. So, I mean, that's, that's high praise, I think. Yes, the high price indeed for the humble donkey. I mean, they probably deserve it. Donkeys do a lot. They may not detect landmines and tuberculosis, but they're cute. Yeah, they do a lot of hard work. They're also very stubborn, but so am I. So who am I to judge? <laughs> yeah, big mood, as the youth say. Big old mood. And I guess more importantly, and this is what we'll we'll end this segment on, because I need to we need to talk about this, Simona. We've kind of touched upon in the past, you know, that you can crossbreed donkeys. And turns out that they have crossbreeded bread, crossbred, crossbreeded bread. Crossbred. Crossbred. Cross. I know, I know how to speak. 
donkeys and zebras. I almost said zebras, but I am American. <laughs> and I have to remind myself that sometimes. Donkeys and zebras. And we have to highlight this because they have a variety of names that I need to I need to get out there into the ether. So a male zebra and a female donkey you cross are <laughs> referred to as zonkeys, zebroids, zebras. And male donkey and female zebras are known as zebrahinis and zebrinis. Yes. It's very exciting news. And they have actually been used as pack animals in Africa. Uh, In wars, they have been used to carry arsenal and things like that. And more broadly, kind of used as a bit of a curiosity in places like zoos. But, I mean... But they're also part, like, of the other section, you know, beyond whomever it was, beyond their waterfowl collection. Here's my zebra collection. Well, no, it's a zonkey collection. (laughs) <laughs> and of course, you know, the, the whole reason why these species can all interbreed is because a zebra also belongs to the genus Echos, which is also, you know, the same genus as the donkey and the horse. And now the zonkey. So while you think about zonkeys, which is exciting to me, we will take a break and we will come back with our case studies. We've got a contest. The folks over at AEO Screen are giving one of our listeners a brand new screen. Pick anything from their website and they'll ship it to you. Not an archaeologist? No problem. These are great for gardening and other tasks around the house. I mean, come on, right? Anyway, these are great screens and you won't be disappointed. We'll pick the winning entry at the end of May. Head over to arcpodnet.com screen for details on how to enter. It's easy and you can get multiple entries. Increase your chances by helping out others. That's arcpodnet.com screen for details on how to win. Want to keep this conversation going? Want to talk to the hosts of this show and other fans? Then join our membership program and get exclusive access to the hosts, other fans, and early access to these episodes and bonus segments and content. You'll also get forever access to our live show back catalog and any other shows ad-free. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for details. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. And we are back with archaeoanimals. We are talking about the zooarchaeology of Africa in this episode. And as always, everyone's favorite part of the episode. I'm not going to spend too much time on it because this bit is probably getting old. It's the case studies. Bum ba da dum. That was your sound effect contribution. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so we are going to talk about two different sites that are probably very important in African archaeology. Obviously, there are loads of sites in Africa. It's very difficult to pick just two. But I figured the first one that we should talk about is is pretty important, arguably one of the most important archaeological and anthropological sites in the entire world. It is Oldevoy Gorge in Tanzania. So if you're not familiar with Oldevoy Gorge, it is the site where one of the earliest human species, Homo habilis, was originally settled. And they would eventually be followed by Paranthropus boise, Homo erectus, and finally Homo sapiens. So 
understandably, Olivoy Gorge is a pretty significant site for understanding human evolution, as well as the development of social and communal behaviors among human species. I think, speaking again as someone who was an anthropology major in America, I think Olduvai Gorge is one of those sites you really tend to talk a lot about. And I haven't really had a chance to kind of think back about the site since kind of moving to the UK and doing my stuff there. It's extremely cool. Simona, I don't know if you've ever really kind of covered this before in your studies or... No, like I've independently read about it because it's very cool. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I guess I'm, you know, I can't really speak for the way archaeology is taught on an undergraduate level here in the UK. I don't know if it's really kind of talked about because, like I said, in America... Archaeology and anthropology are very much intertwined. So a lot of my early archaeology and anthropology courses, we talked a lot about this site. And like I said, it's for a very good reason. It is, a like I said, one of the most important anthropological and archaeological sites in the entire world. But we won't be talking about human evolution, not only because I still don't really understand it. There's a lot of species names in physical anthropology that I cannot pronounce and hard for me to remember all of them. And that is why I didn't do very well in my physical anthropology classes. But yeah, let's talk more about the animal (laughs) remains, which I guess I've never even really thought about because, again, it is such an important human evolution site that when we were doing research for this episode, I was like, oh, yeah, there would be animal species represented at this site, huh? I guess it's just something that doesn't immediately come to mind. Like, for instance, like in a previous episode about Europe, we had Pompeii as one of the case studies. And of course, everyone's heard of Pompeii, but you don't, your mind doesn't necessarily go to, so what animals did they keep at Pompeii? Yeah, that is true. And it's kind of a shame, I guess. I mean, I think it kind of speaks to that. I guess it's like a bit of an issue in archaeology in terms of, you know, what actually gets press, what gets remembered. It's always a very flashy kind of, you know, and again, a lot of times it is human nature. It's stuff that's related to humans. So say like when we were talking about Pompeii, the thing that people remember are those plaster casts of the bodies left behind. You don't necessarily think of, oh, and of course there were rooster remains in one of the houses, you know? And I guess Olduvai Gorge is the same thing. We think a lot about the humanoid kind of remains that are so important to how we understand and conceptualize human evolution. And no one thinks, hey, I wonder if there are animals there. So are are you saying that humans are being anthropocentric? I mean, it's a hot take, I know, and no one's ever said this. But as longtime listeners know, I say the things people are afraid to say. And I guess I would say humans might might be a bit anthropocentric. <laughs> <laughs> Only ever so slightly. It's just a little bit. But, you know, this is why this podcast exists. We are here to look into the zoo archaeological stuff that people don't know about 
Yeah, so there are actually a fair number of species present at Oldavoy Gorge. Most of them are kind of mammalian animals, but particularly large ones. So zebras, hippos, rhinos, antelopes, pigs, giraffes, elephants, uh, crocodiles, and other kind of aquatic species, some different fish who we will not think about too much because, as everyone knows, I have a vendetta against fish, and various primate species. And kind of interesting in that group are the antelopes. They are the most represented among large mammal species at this site. And this is actually kind of echoed at contemporary sites across East Africa. And the kind of main important part of the zooarchaeological stuff at Aldevoy Gorge is actually, I mean, I guess it is a bit anthropocentric, but it's a major part of a long-standing debate over whether or not the hominids hunted or scavenged these animal remains, which we can examine via taphonomic evidence. With the answer being probably both. (laughs) Yeah, ain't that just the way? Yeah, because of course the the, mm, butchery marks that were found, you know, they're, they're indicative of defleshing. So, you know, humans did have access to remains before any carnivore scavengers likely through hunting the animals themselves. And the element composition of the assemblages at Aldevoy Gorge seemed to favor kind of those meat-heavy elements, which could be evidence of, say, you know, transportation of select elements, the ones that did have those meat-heavy elements. You're going to want to grab those and go for a nice chow down, you know? This is like one of the... theories that we have in zooarchaeology, sort of like the meat utility index, circles where certain elements would be favoured over others based on how much, you know, meat utility each element has. But of course, at the same time, that doesn't necessarily bear in mind, you know, so certain cultural variants, because while a particular element may not be particularly meat bearing, it would be favoured by a specific culture over another. I mean, like a I guess a modern day example would be that uh, people really like chicken wings, but in terms of meat utility, not that much there, but people love them. Yeah. And, you know, looking at something so deep into the past, we're looking at early hominids, really don't know what's going on there. Like even at that kind of cultural level, you know, so it, it really is up in the air for in terms of that kind of evidence for hunting Now, on the flip side, we do have kind of the evidence for scavenging. So there are carnivore gnaw marks. And I believe Pat Shipman, who's an archaeologist, made the point that it seems like the gnaw marks were likely made prior to the kind of cut marks that are found on these bones. There's also the fact that these assemblages were in places that are very easily accessible to both humans and carnivorous predators. And, you know, we just talked about the hyenas and how as a taphonomic agent, they would drag animals to, you know, their dens and have that kind of collection of remains there. And the fact that humans and animals could actually, you know, get to these assemblages kind of gives, you know, evidence for the fact that it may be humans coming to these little pits of animals that are half eaten and picking off the rest of them. And there's also the presence of marrow breaking marks 
that are found on all these animal bones. This is actually pointed out by Lewis Binford, uh, who, of course, loves loves to talk about marrow breaking marks. They may be more evidence towards scavenging as if you're scavenging for any kind of meat like this, you're going to want to use as much as possible. And that includes breaking the bone to get to that marrow. Especially if you're basically breaking into a hyena den. Yeah. Very, very brave. (laughs) Yeah, no, exactly. So you kind of, if you're going to risk life or death for that, you might as well get the most out of it. And of course, going back to sort of uh, taphonomic marks that indicate marrow extraction, by that we mean is sort of a particular way in which the bone is shattered, so like hitted with sort of a percussive kind of element. And so the way it shatters indicates that it was hit to get to the marrow. Yes. Of course, it's it's, it's a lot easier these days because you just tend to saw the bone off and get the marrow that way, but that's too easy. Yeah, and uh, man, did I really look at Binford's work on marrow breakage and marrow extraction for my PhD. So I have a very good idea of what he's talking about with that. Now we have evidence for both sides. What's the truth? Well, it may be a mixture of the two. One of the more recent kind of interpretations I've seen put forth is that it could be that the humans, the early human species were potentially hunting smaller mammals, but they would scavenge the larger ones that have already been killed by predators. And a lot of this has been kind of interpreted through more experimental archaeology that has been done looking at survivorship of bones and taphonomic frequencies. But at the end of the day, it seems to be something that we may not really kind of get the the you know, quote unquote, true from because it's a, it's very much based on timing because it really is kind of chicken and egg almost, you know? Yeah. And, and again, like as with most things, the truth probably lies somewhere in the middle because like if they were already hunting, you know, like, okay, you, you hunt your smaller mammals, your antelope, but then you see like an antelope that's literally right there and someone's done all the work for it already. You, you will take advantage of that. Yeah, I mean, Simona, what do you think after hearing kind of both sides of the debate? I think I'm going with both. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's kind of a cop out, but yeah, I mean, like you actually make a really good point of you're hunting and gathering for your survivor. You don't really have a the choice to kind of pick or choose per se. If you find something that has already been kind of done but there's still meat on that bone, you know, you'll probably pick it up. (laughs) And also, like, if it's a predator that you can scare off relatively easily, not because by that humans are threatening in any way, shape or form, (laughs) you know, like, just looking at a human, like, oh, it's this thing standing upright, with, you know, no fangs or claws or anything. However, at the same time, like, is it necessarily worth it to pick a fight with this animal and utilize some of my resources and potentially get injured and not necessarily worth it. So some predators might just, you know, go. Yeah. And then then that's, and then follow me for more like biology. (laughs) (laughs) Moving on. We will look at our second case study, which is the zooarchaeology of great Zimbabwe. Now, great Zimbabwe is unsurprisingly located in Zimbabwe. It's a medieval site. Yeah. Which is uh, located in um, Masvingo in province of Zimbabwe. 
Yeah, and I it just it seems really interesting again to kind of look at a site that is technically a medieval site because of those kind of biases that are are built into not only the both of us who are, are located in the UK, but also in I guess our training as well We'd, and the way we've been brought up in terms of learning about world history. I can say very clearly I never really got any kind of education on the history of the African continent or even say like the Asian continent really. So it's, it's very easy to kind of not even think about these different time periods, but yeah, great Zimbabwe was a very important medieval site. And it was kind of similar to our last episode when we talked about Burka, it was probably a major trade center as well. So there is evidence of long distance trade, including the presence of Chinese and Islamic material goods, and also local trade, as there is a lot of goods from Central Africa. So at its height, it was actually a massive capital of probably a more powerful state with at least, I believe the population numbers is about 20,000 people at its height settled within its territory, which is huge. Absolutely, especially for the time period, would have been a very sort of substantial population. Though the site actually originates from sort of earlier Iron Age agricultural communities. So of course, unsurprisingly, much of the zooarchaeological record that we have found is concerned with domesticates. So you do see sort of certain trends in terms of, sort of the species that you observe sort of throughout the time periods. For instance, during the early Iron Age, the most prevalent domesticates was actually sheep. But then as time goes by, you see them sort of being overshadowed by cattle, which then sort of goes on to basically represent the vast majority of sort of the domesticate assemblage among these agricultural communities. Which I think cattle were actually sort of fairly important for people of Great Zimbabwe, as much of their wealth was obtained through the control of cattle herds in the region. So they would be, they would, for example, reward gold miners with cattle, um, thus using the gold as part of their extensive trade network. Yeah, and there's still kind of debate and research going on, looking at the reasons for the eventual decline and abandonment of the sites, as they're not really that clear, but it's probably due to the kind of environmental impacts of both this large-scale cattle herd management, as well as the kind of immense pressures that you would get from this extremely long-distance trade. Again, you know, going as far as getting Chinese goods, that's pretty massive trade. And it's interesting to kind of think of animals as economically important beyond per se, the labor and the kind of secondary products that we get from them. You know, in this case, we kind of see how they're a form of currency to kind of support this gigantic trade system. So, I mean, I guess this is the good thing about doing a series like this, where we actually get to kind of see these really interesting, different kind of perspectives and different case studies of places that we would never usually talk about because, you know, we're we're very comfortable in our, our British shells, I guess. But I think that does it for this episode. As always, you can find us on Twitter at ArcheoAnimals. If you have an idea for a future episode for us to cover, if there's something you want us to look more into, you know, just tweet at us, let us know. As always, you can 
like and subscribe and review us on wherever you get your podcasts. Tell a friend, tell them to follow us and hey, maybe even join the Archaeology Podcast Network as a member and you might find some some bonus bits and bobs from us. Thank you for listening. Yeah. We'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to Archeo Animals. Please subscribe and rate the podcast wherever you get your podcast from. You can find us on Twitter at Archeo Animals. Also, the views expressed on the podcast are those of ourselves, the hosts and guests, and do not necessarily represent those of our institution, employers, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Laura Johnson. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening. Please consider joining our growing core of members over at archpodnet.com slash members. If you liked what you heard, consider leaving a review wherever you're listening to this. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.